In our previous GDPR-related podcasts, we focused more on the regulation itself and some of the specific implications to marketers in our field. Today's conversation is a bit more of a strategic outlook on what this major tectonic change in privacy laws might mean for marketing overall. And our guest is Peter Bell, Senior Director of Marketing at Marketo EMEA. Peter is an experienced executive with deep knowledge of the software industry and online media and over 25 years in marketing, contributing to the success of some of the most recognizable global product brands. His specialty is understanding key market trends and developments and identifying their strategic implications to current products and services. As an early pioneer in the PC and internet sector, Peter's early roles were in technology, a passion and skill set that are most relevant to marketing than ever. Currently, Peter leads Marketo's marketing in EMEA. Peter, welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you. I, uh, I was actually really looking forward to speaking with you. And I know we started the conversation because I read your Two Tribes of Marketing white paper, uh, which I will ask you about, of course. Uh, I think it would make sense to open with it. But also, it's interesting that as soon as I asked you about it, one of the first things that came up in the conversation was permission marketing. Occasionally, you pick up a book um, which just stays with you throughout your career. And it wasn't actually the permission marketing uh, book of, of Seth's that first caught my eye for him as an author. Uh, it was all marketers is li- uh, all marketers are liars, and uh, I actually occasionally use that book as a prop because uh, it's quite provocative. Um, it's a great device for getting people to put their phones down and and wonder what hey what's this guy going to say next? He's just called he's just called all marketers liars. Uh, but there was a lot of truth in that original book and. Permission-based marketing, uh, it's perhaps more current and more relevant now than it was in 1999. Um, 1999, if if you're old enough to think back, was all about TV, out-of-home, cinema, radio advertising. It was broadcast. Uh, There was no two-way dialogue. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. There was no Instagram. Uh, You know, the internet, as we think of it, just barely existed. So I think it has more relevance now. And I think it's a a fabulous... uh, narrative for marketers today. And when you said this is the moment in time, there is something very important changing happening right now. Uh, It is a huge opportunity for every marketer out there. Can you talk a little bit about the two tribes of marketing and why permission marketing is alive again? Yes. So the two tribes report came out of, and it was some original research we conducted uh, in April, just before the GDPR went into force in Europe. Um, And I'd done quite a bit of content production, content creation for our customers, um, how to use our product line at Marketo in the context of GDPR. So it was a subject I knew well, and I have a background in in privacy and uh, data escrow and handling sensitive data. So it's a topic close to my heart. And as the deadline loomed, uh, we started asking ourselves questions around the office. You know, I wonder what consumer perceptions are. I wonder what business perception really is. Because all of the, the discussion and narrative around GDPR was, was frankly just on the mechanics of the law. You need to do this and this. You need to opt in or do you need to double opt in? And it was a very dry technical discussion. So we decided to do some primary research and we surveyed uh, 3,000 consumers across Europe and 300 businesses uh, to understand not their understanding of the technicalities of the law, but their attitudes towards it. And the, the big reveal for us was the clear split which GDPR had created within marketers in Europe. And it's a cultural split. It was split almost down the middle, 45, 55 
And 55% are, you know, what we came to term as marketing first. Uh, marketing firsts, as in they viewed this as an opportunity to do better marketing. But the other half of the audience uh, that was surveyed, they came back with a legal first mentality. So it was all about being compliant. Okay, what's the minimum I have to do to be compliant and stay out of trouble? They hadn't taken the opportunity to say, what can I do to take this opportunity to raise the bar on my marketing, engage with my customers? Uh, and in thinking of a title for the report, uh, we we came to two tribes because we do literally have two tribes within marketing, those seizing the opportunity to be better marketers and those simply seeking to be compliant. This is the time when, for the first time, marketers have a choice. I think you said, um, hey, every marketer was told to buy a list and send an email which doesn't work. It doesn't work. Um, it doesn't matter if you're in Silicon Valley, your experience, you, you work uh, with the US companies, with the UK companies, you work with companies across the globe. It just doesn't work. And perhaps some countries were a bit ahead and had to do, had to make the changes early on. But now we are making changes globally. GDPR sort of created this wave of now you have to make a choice which tribe you want to belong to and how you're going to do that. So what are the main things that you think those from the culture of marketing first companies, what do you think was different about those marketers and why, why did they take that approach? Is it, is it their belief, inspiration? Were they forced to do that? Or is it desire to be a better marketer? It's probably a combination of all of those things. We know that from, from the research that those marketers were more likely to have invested in technology in the marketing first tribe. They were much more likely to have sat down with sales and redefined processes. And generally, they were much more optimistic about their ability to deliver against their, their key metrics. So they'd, you know, they'd viewed it as a, as, a, as a turning point, if you will. And of course, this is not just Europe. We see similar legislation coming in, uh, well, already in place, in fact. You know, if you take Castle in, in Canada or the Anti-Spam Act in Australia, uh, and ironically, uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act. So in the very backyard of Silicon Valley, we're, we're seeing a response to consumer and legislative frustration with poor marketing practices. Um, so it was interesting to see that you know, half of us saying, okay, this is our time. We will make the investments. We will make the business case. We'll use this opportunity of legal compliance and uh, to get the investment perhaps we've been asking for for some time. Whereas, sadly, for about half a market, it was like, let, let's just get through this. Uh, let's minimize it and, and move on and, and just hopefully do things as we did. Which, again, in the data of the, the report, it shows candidly that they are, they are much less likely to to be successful. Interesting. And uh, I wanted to tell you that when we were preparing for GDPR, we have a package that we've installed for several clients. And I predicted geographically, perhaps there would be more interest uh, industry-wise, vertical-wise, there would be more interest. And actually, no, in my experience, the packages that we have installed, we started with Castle some time ago, but it actually was uh, sought after and installed by the marketers from the Marketing First Tribe. They wanted to either become a thought leader. Um, in, in fact, a few companies created their own GDPR center and resource packs for their customers. 
and they wanted to make sure that they knew it in and out. It was real pleasure to work with those because I felt that those are the marketers that look to turn strangers into friends, to use Seth's uh, terminology, and, and really dug into every detail of our package to understand what and how it works from technology perspective. Uh, but what does that mean for their customers? And it's funny that we generated additional leads from our customers who ins- installed GDPR and then told about it to their customers. And I'm still kind of trying to compare. There were a lot of uh, conferences I went to and asked marketers, what are you doing for GDPR? And, and, and the answer often was probably from the other tribe. Um, <laughs> our legal took care of it. <laughs> and if you work with marketing automation, you definitely know that's not, you know, that's not um, enough. Um, and it's not enough uh, probably from... Um, a couple of perspectives. Here we're talking about GDPR and something specific, but you and I agree that this conversation is going to be not a how-to, but more so strategic. And I think it poses a question, what should we do differently and how? And it goes back to your point about consumers being skeptical. In today's world, they feel that they get too many emails, too many calls that they don't want, or they're not relevant, or they're not at the right time. Um, They feel that there's a really good book, another good book in your face marketing in the US about how loud marketing can be and (laughs) can be annoying. (laughs) So I think from a strategic point of view, this is such an opportunity to not only to stop emailing or stop marketing to certain people, but also start doing things differently, thoughtfully, um, to leverage data in a better way, um, to really create personalized messages to what I call create a conversation. Like you and I, we're talking about something that's relevant to us and I'm really looking forward to your opinion. Uh, Much like if you create marketing that is welcome, subscribe to, anticipated the prospect or customer will complain if they don't receive it as opposed to us bombarding them with messages that you know hopefully will get through and hopefully they'll buy one day i honestly believe it no longer works regardless which country you're in yeah i'd agree and look some quick statistics and i I promised you i wouldn't uh, overload us with statistics but these ones are worth sharing and this is from the consumer side of the research um, and look, the headline is simple. Consumers are very skeptical. 67% of respondents, so this is 3,000 consumers, um, said that they, they get too many unsolicited marketing calls and contacts from companies they know. So this is companies you know, they're, they're willing to hold a relationship with, maybe transact with, but in 67% of cases, they're just seeing too much email or too much retargeting because this is not just about email. You know, if uh, a similar statistic, 72% get too many unsolicited marketing calls and contacts from companies they don't know. So it creeps up. But this is the, the killer statistic for me, which is 83% of respondents felt that companies would find a way to work around the new data regulations to continue marketing to me. And this phrase, marketing to me, I think uh, captures a, a lot of what's wrong and what we need to do differently. No one wants to be marketed to. If you give me a checkbox on a form and you say, do you want to be marketed to? I, would, uh, I wouldn't check that box. Whereas if it said, you know, would you like us to engage us on things you're interested in? Yeah, everyone wants to be engaged in things that are interesting to them. 
And it's this mindset, and it starts with this for me, which is stop marketing to people and start engaging people. And you will see a lift in responses. But if you just want a practical thing, a really practical thing, if 67% of people are saying you're, you're over-communicating to them, then take a look at your email unsubscribes. And frankly, if it's anything above half of a percent, then you need to look at frequency and lower your frequency. Just, you know, if we just get practical for a moment, because this, whilst this is a, a higher level conversation, this, this translates directly into day-to-day marketing operational tactics. I think you mentioned if your unsubscribe is over half a percent, you're sending too much, right? That's very yep. clear. And, and it could be kind of back to our conversation. Uh, it could be that it's in the wrong channel. It could be also the wrong thing going to this person. It's not only the cadence. It's a combination of all of the above. Yes, agreed, agreed. I mean, the, me- the message, uh, you could communicate with perfect cadence to me, but if, it, if it's a product for which I have no need, um, or it's a product which I'm simply not in market for, you know, it amazes me. Uh, we all have these consumer examples, and I'm going to use a consumer example here, but um, it applies to B2B just as much as it applies to B2C. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I've just bought a, a, white, a, you know, a white good of some type, a refrigerator or a cooker or something like that, it may, and I pretty much buy everything online. Um, I was one of the earliest adopters of uh, internet shopping, probably. Uh, so I'm a through and through internet shopper. I know every size and measurement for clothing I can buy with confidence and I will buy anything uh, to save me going to the high street. If I buy a new refrigerator, any types of white good, it, it, I can almost guarantee I'll get an email within a month uh, offering me the same product. And I, this is a product I'd hope would last 10 years. And you know, it, it just illustrates this point, which which you touch on, which is look, it it has to be the right message. Yeah, and the cadence needs to be right, but it has to be the right message. Um, and we, ha- you mentioned it earlier, we have to use the data we have to much greater effect. And the companies who do that, and we all have our examples, and unfortunately, they tend to be the same small number of companies because today they are the exception. But for me, three companies really engage me. You know, there's the ubiquitous Amazon who. Who uh, you know? The simple truth is, I buy there for convenience. They're not always the cheapest, but they have the best um, delivery options. They have great reverse logistics if I need to return something. I just really trust them in terms of they're they're creating great convenience for me, which I value. Netflix, you know, Netflix use the channels of communication really well. They only really use email to nudge me into using their product more. A new TV series relates to something else I've watched. And perhaps one a little more local to Europe, though I think they're broken into the US, is Nespresso. Um, you know, they they have very light touch marketing, and you know, I continue to be a, a customer. I'm on my third machine, um, and what saddens me is this shouldn't be the exception. We shouldn't be sat here talking about this because this is how we should all, all work in B2C or B2B. But most people cite similar examples because they are the exception. But it can be done. I'm actually drinking espresso as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, I really like that you use the phrase, um, I trust them. Uh, and it's of great convenience to me. I think, um, and, and of course, pardon me, I come from the world of marketing automation and CRM that has great data and we know how to use it. But I think if I may say so, there is no excuse for marketers today to not to be personal, to not to be relevant and to not to 
ask uh, their prospects and customers about how often they would like to receive communications. We have great technologies at hand that allow for us to understand, um, let me call it digital body language. We're really, we can even infer with a greater intelligence rather than just beating on, uh, beating on, let's call them leads. Um, that's what they are in a system, uh, beating on leads, hoping that they'd buy. I think that coming back to your inspiring ma- message that you can say no to bad marketing and to best bad practice, and you can leverage things available to you, learn about capabilities um, that are in front of you at your fingertips to be more intelligent about how you communicate. Uh, it's almost like creating that conversation and the word, I trust them, <laughs> of great convenience to me, don't come because you they asked you to trust them, but it came from a particular practice that you found um, worked for you. It, you didn't find it annoying and you found it useful, of great service to you and, and convenience. As the English would say, I have a, a dog in this race. Um, you know, it's... Uh, I, the thing I'd add is, you know, we need, we need to apply intelligently. With the technology we all have to hand, and I'd hope it would be Marketo technology. But, you know, whatever technology you're using, uh, you know, we have infinite ability to communicate with customers. You know, there's an abundance of display media if we're talking about advertising. Uh, we're not restrained in the way that TV is in terms of fixed amount of inventory. Um, we can send as much email as we want. Um, if I had a, a time machine, I would go back and I would charge a penny to send an email. Like, imagine that the change that would have had over our culture over the last uh, 20 years or so, if it just cost a penny or a fraction of a penny to send an email. Um, But I don't have a time machine. So looking forward, um, what we've got to understand is we all have as consumers, whether that's us as a consumer, as a true consumer, or as a, a consumer in business in our professional lives, we only have a finite attention span. You know, it's quite famously falling. We all know that that narrative. But once we pass that attention span, then it's just white noise and you're, you're just alienating yourself. So it's a question of, you know, using the data to power the technology intelligently. Um, and and you, you earn that trust and it is earned. It's easily lost. Uh, it's hard. It's hard fought to earn it. But once you have it, you have quite a special relationship with your customer. I think you mentioned also data quality. Why do you think the quality of that data is important? It's not just having the data, but having the right data. I guess they say there's de- data, bad data, and then there's statistics. <laughs> yes. Uh, or the, uh, what's the older one? There's another one. Lies, damned lies, and statistics. Yeah. Um, so. And we're not talking statistics here, but, you know, and this is a longstanding problem. Uh, it would be a probably maybe 10 years ago um, when I was working on the publisher side in di- uh, digital advertising, uh, we benchmarked third-party cookie pools just on what was the quality bar for male, female, and age, so age and gender. And we found, in, you know, in less than half of the cases, it was around it was 42 43%, were these two variables correct? So I could be misidentified, you know, and, and more, more often than not as an under 21-year-old female, which, mm-hmm. you know, if, you, <laughs> if you've met me, but for everyone else, you can probably <laughs> tell by the voice, that's not me. And, you know, that, that's a pretty terrible state of affairs. Um, it all, you know, and what, reasons for one of my skepticisms towards sort of third-party cookie pools and, you know, taking DMPs and then, and then filling them with third-party cookie pools because they're highly perishable. 
um, and the quality is, is quite questionable. So I place a lot of value from that experience um, on first-party data. Uh, it is, a, you know, for me, if I whatever company I work in or running, I would regard first-party data that I collect and hold on behalf of my customers and prospects as probably one of the key strategic assets of the company. Um, and it's the it's the antithesis of you know, sales being behind their number at the end of a quarter and marketing being told to, hey, go buy a list and send some email because the list is always terrible and, you know, the message is not relevant and we, you know, all the things that we were talking about sort of kick in and, and nothing happens as a consequence. And frankly, you do this enough time, then your data becomes terrible and you're just simply not in a great place as opposed to investing over time strategically in the data you hold and building that data, only holding the data you need and for the purposes intended, et cetera, as GDPR and Castle and other things would set out. And obviously treating it with great care and ensuring it's secure. Uh, yes, I get. Um, I have CEO in my title and therefore I get about five or more emails a day offering to set up a call for today. Imagine how relevant, timely, or interesting it is to me. <laughs> I actually, <laughs> exactly. most certainly myself or my, my executive assistant takes the time to report spam and uh, there you go. So they don't work. I want to ask you, I really like that conversation and, and um, in preparation for this. And I want to ask you about kind of regaining the trust of the consumer. Um, B2B or B2C buyer, doesn't matter. As well as you talk about telling great stories. Can you share a little bit um, insight into what does that mean to tell great stories as a marketer and how, what can we do differently to regain that trust? The first step is the hardest, uh, not to sound too cliched. And I'm going to go back to Amazon um, because I can speak about it personally and it applies to me personally. Um, if you go back and look at Amazon, you know, that the simple truth in their story is one of great convenience. You know, and almost everything from friends who work there and my experience as a customer of theirs, it comes back to this simple truth that they are creating convenience for me. Yes, the price competitive and other things, but almost every aspect of their business, when you step back and look at it critically, talks to, yes, customer first, but customer first in the sense of creating convenience. And too many companies, especially in B2B actually, don't really understand their under, own, own underlying purpose. And let me bring it to Marketo, you know, marketing automation provider. And that's all we do. Our purpose is simple. We are here to serve marketers. And that informs every choice, large or small. Uh, but as you know, I travel around the world and speak to, to various companies in various industries and uh, geographies. People really struggle with this simple first-hand question: you know, what's the purpose of your company? What's that underlying truth? Because all stories start with that, and all storytelling starts with that. And if you don't know what it is, it's difficult to sustain this over time, or even do it in the first instance. Things like authenticity fall away, uh, they become short-term, employees don't necessarily embrace it and believe in it because it doesn't have a truth. So for me, it starts with that truth. If you can find your truth, then things are much, much easier. Take Microsoft, my old employer, you know, a PC on every desk and on every home. And in 1975, that sounded ridiculous and audacious in equal measure. 
but it informed everything pretty much that Microsoft did over the following years. And again, it's just a great example where it, it, it's clarifying and uh, for a better way of putting it, it keeps you honest. So these authentic stories are required. You have to find sort of the truth of the brand and, and speak from that place, not from a made-up story. Correct. Otherwise, people see through it. You know, it's simply not authentic. And then you start, you know, you lose your way. And before you know it, you're producing irrelevant content. And by the way, in a 2017 survey that we did, which is global with, I think, about 6,000 respondents, irrelevant content was the number one reason customers said they would not engage with a brand. And to your personal example of your inbox, you know, they're not taking a moment to understand you, your role. And leading with that, instead, they're asking you for your time without, ever, without first establishing what they're going to use that time for. Now, that's a, di- that's a different problem, which could be more easily solved in terms of, you know, start the conversation at the right point, not halfway through. But I suspect some of those people you're referring to are skipping it because they haven't answered these fundamental questions. I wanted to mention, so, of course, compliance, we started with compliance and GDPR. Um, Castle has been around for a while. Uh, we've installed quite a few Castle packages, but it was a very interesting conversation on site with a client post-implementation. So we're talking about what all needs to be done. And Castle is, like GDPR, has its own uh, very specific requirements. Castle has its own. And uh, one of the comments we got was, this is really complicated. <laughs> we thought we were in good shape, uh, but but this is a lot more than we imagined. And um, I said, yes, of course, Uh, but we made it easy for you. We automated it because we have Marketo. We can do that. We thought through every single thing we could possibly uh, make easier for clients. But um, this is interesting. I had the people in the room. So we had about 20 people in the room, um, marketers from different teams. And um, I had them change their... Uh, hat. Uh, first, the comment came in said, okay, this is really complicated. Uh, this is annoying. You know, we have to do all of this. But then I said, and we implemented it a few months after Castle went live, right? And I said, but don't you think this will make your marketing work better now that you don't email or don't market to those who are not interested in your marketing, your actual engagement rates, and I'm not using open, I'm using your terminology engagement rates, your engagement rates should be much, much higher. Wouldn't you be excited to see that? And of course, I got the answer, yes, we would be excited to see that. And I said, but what about you as consumers? Tell me what has been your experience in the last few months in terms of receiving spam email? So they immediately switched their roles from marketers who have to do their job to consumers who are on the receiving end of this. And they said, actually, it's been very nice because we have considerably less spam in our email, considerably less spam. And the things we receive are interesting. <laughs> I hope yes. that GDPR is going, this, is going to impact the same way. I actually have an ambition for GDPR to change the way we think about marketing, not just uh, regionally uh, in the UK and uh, EU, but really kind of create that wave and, and inspire marketers to be in the marketing first clan, not in the legal first tribe. Um, yeah. And look, I think it, just a quick comment to interject there. It's if you take all of the legislation we've, we've passed reference to where GDPR really is the granddaddy of them all, you know, it's, it's by far and away the, the larger piece of legislation. This is a terrific mandate to do better marketing. 
you know, it gives us the ultimate retort to buy a list, uh, which is just my, if you haven't figured, you know, my just the, the worst uh, thing that can happen to me in any given day, which is being asked to buy a list. And it has happened recently. It's a terrific mandate. And I don't know we'll get this mandate again. And it's our choice whether we take it. And compliance is necessary, but it's not sufficient to help your business grow. And, and let me explain what I mean by that. You know, if you want a seed to germinate, uh, water is necessary, but you need, you also need nutrients, uh, you need light, you need other things as well as water. And compliance in its own right, which is what concerns me about the, the legal first uh, tribe, uh, are missing this important point. Whereas the marketing first tribe have understood this. Yes, it's necessary and it, it's, it's perhaps complex, but we'll find a way through it. And having found a way through it, it gives them a mandate, and then they get to bring in the other things which enable them to grow their businesses and be a part of that success. Um, like it, it, it really is a wonderful mandate and a, a real opportunity for us, but we do have to take it. I agree with you. And it's actually exciting. Uh, with that sort of inspiration message, um, as we conclude the strategy conversation today, what are the three, five things that you recommend this marketer is listening to, to the conversation, they go back, what should they do? What should they look at? And, and whatever level, executive, uh, marketer who's executing, marketing operations person, what can we, we go back to work tomorrow? What can we do differently? I'd summarize along two lines. The first is, you know, a, a real review of your content. Is it relevant? Your channel, are you using the right channels to communicate? You know, I may prefer email, you may prefer social media, vice versa. Is it the right channel? Uh, and then we touched on cadence. So that, you know, that just from a, a straight delivery standpoint, it would be those three things. But then in terms of the content itself, it's simple. Keep it personal, keep it interesting, keep it relevant, and be authentic. You know, otherwise, as we were talking, as we were talking earlier, following your, your, your company's truth. Uh, you have to find that in order to be authentic and everything else gets much easier. But I, I close by saying one thing, which is this idea of permission marketing has been around around 20 years. Uh, let's make it happen now. Like you, I look forward to this next iteration of marketing to the opportunities open to us, even if they come with challenges. And thank you so much for sharing your opinion, Peter. Thank you. And thank you for the time today. Feel brave.